thank you, Lord, again for your faithfulness to us in all things. Lord, we just come now with the intention of our heart that we would hear the words that you want us to hear and that we would apply what it is that you want us to apply in our lives. Thank you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. All right. Well, if you have your Bibles here or your phones, feel free to open them up. I do apologise. I don't have anything up on the screen for you to follow, um, but I'm sure you'll survive. I want to start in Acts chapter 17, verse 22, and I'll give you a little bit of context of that and just read part of that chapter to you. Um, we find Paul in Athens. He's in Athens because he's been chased out of a few other cities because he would go into the Jewish synagogues to tell the people there about Jesus being the Messiah that they've been waiting for. And some um, became believers as a result, but many others didn't like that message and chased him out of town. And then they heard he was in the next town, so they sent other people out to chase him out of that town. So his companions at the time said, go to Athens, wait for us there. So that's where we pick up the story. He is in Athens waiting for his friends and he sees that there's a lot of idols around in this city and it distressed him a lot. Um, we're also told in the passage that Athens is a place where they love to talk about the latest ideas. So um, Paul, probably being himself, was talking to everybody and anybody he could about Jesus. And the people of Athens caught wind of this and said, hey, why don't you come and talk in the public arena because we've never heard anything like you've been talking about before and we want to hear more. Okay, so this is where we're going to start from. Acts 17, chapter 22 to 31. So Paul, standing before the council, addressed them as follows. Men of Athens, I noticed that you were very religious in every way. For as I was walking along, I saw your many shrines, and one of your altars had this inscription on it, to an unknown God. This God, whom you worship without knowing, is the one I'm telling you about. He is the God who made the world and everything in it. Since he is Lord of heaven and earth, he doesn't live in man-made temples, and human hands can't serve his needs, for he has no needs. He himself gives life and breath to everything, and he satisfies every need. From one man, he created all the nations throughout the whole earth. He decided beforehand when they should rise and fall and he determined their boundaries. Listen to this, his purpose, God's purpose was for the nations to seek after God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Though he is not far from any one of us, for in him we live and move and exist or have our being. Did you notice there that Paul said that God was hoping that they might seek after him and perhaps reach out and find him, though he's not far from any of us. The people of Athens had made this idol for a God, for them, who was unknown, but perhaps in their thinking he was unknowable. And Paul was making that very point that God's actually not far from any of us, but particularly those who are seeking to find him. Now, our understanding of idols has traditionally been an object, right, that's made out of stone or wood or gold, and it's not really something that we relate to, I don't think, in our culture. 
but I think an idol isn't actually necessarily the thing that you hold that object itself it's it's more the idea or the image that we have of that which we worship so if as believers we have an image of God that doesn't line up with who he has revealed himself to be in his word then we can have an idol let me give you an example. Probably 30 years ago, there was a movie that came out called Beaches. Probably three quarters of the people here might remember it and the others weren't born. Um, and there was, uh, Bette Midler was in that movie. So of course there was quite a big soundtrack that came out from that. But one song in particular was very popular. And I was probably in year 11 at the time. And I remember some people in our church had sort of, um, up the idea of playing this particular song in a church service like an inspirational sort of um, reflection time um, now these people were lovely people they loved God they were serving him at church um, they themselves have had experienced um, a terrible family tragedy a, a few years before this time that I'm talking about um, and so I often look back and wonder what it was about this song that appealed to them um, maybe it was a source of comfort. So I'm going to read a few of the words, not all of the words of this song, and see what you think. From a distance, the world looks blue and green and snow-capped mountains white. From a distance, the ocean meets the stream and the eagle takes to flight. From a distance, there is harmony and it echoes through the land. It's the voice of hope. It's the voice of peace, it's the voice of every man. From a distance, we all have enough and no one is in need. And there are no guns, no bombs and no disease, no hungry mouths to feed. From a distance, we are instruments marching in a common band, playing songs of hope, playing songs of peace. They are the songs of every man. Wait for the chorus. God is watching us. God is watching us. God is watching us. From a distance. This song goes on and on and on. It's got more words in the same vein and that chorus just keeps echoing and echoing. And when I hear this song, it, it angers me and it saddens me all at the same time. Because it depicts God as looking on from a distance without seeing or caring about what is happening to the people on this earth. It depicts him as distant, powerless, uncaring and cold, a God who doesn't care and a God that doesn't want to be known, unknowable. And this is not how God has revealed himself in his word. But do you know what? I think sadly many believers, like the beautiful people that, that wanted this song played in church and found it appealing in some way, Many believers have this image of God as the one that they worship. And I think it's because so often we allow the circumstances of life to shape our image of God, believing that everything that happens is God's will and his doing. And we do this rather than believing and understanding who he is from who he says he is in the word. Now, Paul told the people of Athens that God was wanting to be found. So throughout history, God has been inviting humans into relationship with him. It's always a really good idea to go back to the very beginning 
to see what God intended for his creation. And I'm sure we're all really familiar with the account found in Genesis of the Garden of Eden. There were two trees in this garden, right? One tree was the tree of life and the other was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So the guys from the Bible Project, I think they explain these two trees really well. Uh, the tree of life, they say, was a source of God's life. Adam and Eve were free to eat the fruit from this tree. It represented the opportunity for humanity to have proximity to God and to receive life in his presence, eternal life. It actually was a quality of life that they were receiving. And in the Hebrew, we don't get it so much when we read it in the English, but in the Hebrew, Adam and Eve are portrayed as children. The tree of good and evil then represented two ways that they could know this good and evil. The first way was that they could actually take and eat the fruit by themselves and somehow become like Elohim. And the second way was to allow God to teach them wisdom. I wonder how many of us have viewed God as holding something back from Adam and Eve when he said don't eat from the fruit of the tree of good and knowledge of good and evil. That's a mouthful, isn't it? Anyway, this is certainly the view that the serpent was pushing. However, if we look a bit closer, we can see that God was extending an invitation, a choice to learn from him. You know what, they would still get to eat the fruit from that tree, but they would do it together with God's guidance and learning his wisdom. It's interesting to see how Adam and Eve actually perceived and viewed God just before and just after they ate the fruit. Now the serpent posed a few questions that puts God in a different light. Did he really say? You know, he was casting a doubt on what God had instructed and he also contradicted God's warning about the dangers of taking and eating this fruit on your own. The serpent put, views, put forward the view that God was withholding the fruit because he didn't want them to be like him. It was just an out and out lie. So after Adam and Eve ate the fruit, what happened? They hid from God's presence. God came looking for them. He knew what they had done. Yes, he came looking for them after they had sinned. I've heard another Hebrew scholar describe this time um, where God came looking. Because again, in the English it says, it says, where are you? Like God didn't know where they were. And it certainly wasn't like him playing hide and seek going, where are you? Where are you? But it also wasn't a passion of anger that he came looking for them, ready to kick them out of the Garden of Eden. But it was a passion that um, was more like someone in pain and agony saying, where are you? Because he knew that his children were lost. They'd lost their identity when they had chosen the, to take that fruit on their own. Now, Adam and Eve were the ones hiding from God, right, from his presence. And they did this because of the guilt and shame that they felt. Now, their view and image of God had become very distorted. And distance now characterised their relationship with God. 
We know sin had its consequences just as God had warned and death and corruption came into this world. But God's plan of redemption had already begun. In fact, we're told in Revelation that the Lamb, who is Jesus, was slain before the foundation of the world, right? So God had originally intended his creation to be in relationship with him as his children. But when that was rejected, which he foreknew was going to happen, he wasn't going to give up. So we see so many times in the Old and the New Testament that God is the God of invitation to fellowship with him, to partner with him on this earth. So we're told in Psalm 103 that the Lord made known his ways to Moses and his acts to the people of Israel. And if you search a little deeper, you'll find that God actually invited the people of Israel to get to know him. It was a marriage proposal, actually, but they rejected him. See, the people of Israel had seen God's mighty acts. He'd delivered them. This is in the desert where God had made this invitation. But their view of him was frightening. And so they said to Moses, we don't want to get to know him. You go and do it on our behalf. You come back and tell us what he said. They preferred to have idols instead of accepting the invitation to get to know God intimately and personally. Another example, a beautiful one, of God extending that invitation to draw near is in Isaiah 55. I'll read some of it, not all of it to you. Come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters, and you who have no money, come and buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why spend money on what is not bread and your labour on what does not satisfy? Listen, listen to me and eat what is good and you will delight in the richest affair. Give ear and come to me. Listen that you may live. I will make an everlasting covenant with you. My faithful love promised to David. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. Sounds like what Paul was saying, doesn't it? Let the wicked forsake their ways and the unrighteous their thoughts. Let them turn to the Lord and he will have mercy on them. And to our God, for he will freely pardon for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Can you see, God is always saying, come on, I want to be in your life. I want to provide for you. I want to forgive you. I want to teach you. I want to guide you. Look at verse 7. Let the wicked leave behind his ways and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return to the Lord. Why? Because he will have compassion. That's not our way, is it? And he will abundantly pardon. Why? Because his thoughts are not our thoughts and his ways are not our ways. It's an invitation to leave behind our way of thinking and learn his way of thinking and his ways. This is not saying that I am so far above you, you cannot know me. It's an invitation to get to know him. And it starts with, get, with getting rid of our own thoughts. 
Jesus in the community. Does any of this sound familiar with the invitations that Jesus gave? He gave many invitations and I'll just choose one of them for this morning. In Matthew 11, 28 to 30, a verse that I'm sure we're all very familiar with, it says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. For a Jew, and that's who Jesus was talking to at the time, taking the yoke of the rabbi reflected a disciple's willing submission and adherence to his chosen rabbi's interpretation and application of God's word. Jesus was saying, let me teach you who God is. Jesus was the exact representation of God. And we, when we look at his life on the earth, it was one marked by drawing near to people and extending an invitation to follow. But he never forced anyone to do that, did he? You see, in Jesus, Eden was restored. And in some ways, well, it is. It's, it's better for us now. If you're in Jesus, because God actually dwells on the inside of us by his spirit. So just as the tree of life symbolised proximity to God's presence and the receiving of eternal life, his quality of life is available to us now through Jesus, through the beliefs of our heart. But it's still a choice whether we eat that fruit daily. Okay, so if you've accepted that first invitation that God has given us, and that's the invitation to salvation, you've tasted the fruit of eternal life. But unfortunately for many of us as believers, we think that that's it until heaven, where of course we're going to experience the fullness of eternal life. But wait, there's more, of course. Have a look at what Jesus said to Nicodemus in John 3. Unless you have been born again, you can't see, or another way of saying that is perceive, or even enter the kingdom of God. Hang on. What does this mean? That being born again isn't seeing or entering into the kingdom of God? See, our definitions trip us up all the time. We just lump everything in together and we miss the fullness of what Jesus is saying. Yes, if you've been born again, Jesus is your saviour. You are saved. You have been made a new creation. You will be spending eternity with God. But the kingdom of God is that realm where true disciples venture into, where they allow Jesus to be Lord as well as saviour. Remember what we said a disciple was? It's one who willingly submits to and adheres to the rabbi's interpretation and application of the word of God. It is laying aside our views and opinions. And Paul puts it like this in Ephesians. Put off your old self and be renewed in the spirit of your minds and put on the new man which has been made in the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. You know, at the time that Jesus appears, we're told that we are going to be like him. 
Why? Because we shall see him as he is. There's a principle here, I think. The more we see God as he is, then the more we become like him, the more we experience him and his life in this life. It matters how we view God. You know, I know for many years, I've actually taken comfort in the fact that Jesus is with me, never to leave me, never to forsake me. But my lived reality really was like that I was carrying around a big cuddly teddy bear, an idol actually, powerless to make any real difference in my life. One good thing was that the teddy bear was a reminder of what I could look forward to in the future, but I was still living in fear in many areas of my life. I wasn't experiencing peace, which is one of the hallmarks of the kingdom of God. So for me, going on this journey of putting off and putting on, I've started to experience that peace in ever-increasing measure. Am I experiencing it in the fullness yet? No, I'm not. But I'm on the journey and I can tell you that my lived experience is far better. And I don't want to downplay at all or belittle how amazing that time will be when we actually have Jesus return. Because the fullness of his presence and all that brings with it is something to look forward to. It is a hope for us. But I know that God extends his invitation continually to us to be in relationship with him now, where we can experience more and more of him in this life. He's actually not holding anything back, just like with Adam and Eve. It's there for the taking. I've been the one that's limited God in my life. Now, every generation in history has probably claimed that they're living in strange and dark times. And I think we could all agree that that's what everybody's doing now. All we're living in terrible times, strange and dark times. And I think we probably are. But I think that's because every generation in history has been living in dark and strange times because the influence of darkness has been around since the beginning of time. But we have a hope for now. We have a hope for the future too when Jesus returns, but we have a hope now despite what is going on around us. We have that hope to be in relationship with God, to grow in his wisdom. And you know what? That wisdom can make a difference in the life that we're living now. He's got strategies for us, for this life. And we can experience more and more of his quality of life. He wants to make a difference in our lives, but not only our lives, he wants to make a difference in the world around us as well. It's not just about us. It's about the world around us who don't even know, haven't even accepted the first invitation of salvation. You know what, we don't, it's good news. It really is good news. We don't have to beg, we don't have to jump through any religious hoops. We don't have to hope that we've caught God in a good mood to see his life manifest in our lives and the lives of, of those around us. But you do have to believe him at his word. Believe who he says he is. Believe all that Jesus has accomplished in the finished work of the cross. 
and to believe who he has made us to be in Jesus, that we are his children. And to believe or to have faith is simply to be persuaded. And with the help of the Holy Spirit, we can persuade our hearts of the goodness of God. So I, I hope that after you go home from here, that you'll join me in accepting that invitation to draw near to God, to put off your view and opinion of him that limits him and take on his view and opinion. And you know how that starts? It simply starts with acknowledging that we have blind spots in our understanding of who God is. And then a willingness to allow the Holy Spirit to show us where they are and what they are and a readiness to put them aside. It's probably not going to be comfortable. Who likes to be shown things that, you know, in our thinking that's not quite right? Nobody, I don't think, really, if we're honest. So it may not be comfortable, but from my experience at least, and I know a lot of other people who are on this journey, it's actually worth it to go on this journey. So I hope you'll join me. It is good news. God is good. And he is with us, not distant. He's not with us as a teddy bear to be powerless. He has power. He has hope for us now. I bet we get the band to come up just as we pray. You can choose what we sing. Let's just quieten ourselves again now, just in prayer. Don't, don't rush to what needs to be done after this. If you have had a prompting this morning from the Holy Spirit, that you know you might have some idols in your own heart about who God is. Start to do business with him now. But, but don't just do it now here at church. Make it an intention of your heart to spend time with him and allow him to show you those things. And he will help you. Spirit has been given as a helper and it says that he's been given to guide us into all truths. So Father, we thank you. We thank you that you are good and we acknowledge we don't know you and we don't see you fully as you are, but we want to humble ourselves and learn from you. We want to see who you are more and more. We want you to make a difference in our lives, but we also want to be vessels that can make a difference in the lives of the people around us who don't know you. We love you. We worship you. And we thank you. Amen.